Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. All right, so this conversation with Jack Shu is long, but it's so worth it because we have many in-depth conversations about issues such as institutional racism and cultural assimilation within the state and federal park services in the U.S. And the reason one of this conversation was long is because Jack was really sharing the insight, the knowledge and wisdom that he has acquired from 29 years of working in the California Department of Parks and Recreation, primarily as a superintendent in the Office of Community Involvement. We talked about the diversity of functions that the Park Service fulfills in protecting our natural and historic gems. I also learned about some of the initiatives that Jack implemented in his career to create accessibility and inclusion in the programs that he ran. For example, he opened up my eyes to how park registration systems are flawed in that they tend to exclude low-income communities who don't have access to the resources. Also very interesting are the outdoor educational programs that Jack currently runs to raise awareness on the contribution of Chinese Americans in establishing the infrastructure in some of our keystone natural parks when they were being established. So yeah, it's a lot of good stuff. Have a few chores lined up for this one, but not too intense because you want to take a pause and process some of this stuff. I hope you enjoy it. So I thought we could start off our conversation with you telling us a little bit about how you developed your passion for the environment. Uh, I think since I was a teenager, I did spend a lot of time in outdoors hiking and walking, actually in urban areas around Los Angeles, a lot of hiking at the Griffith Park, which is an urban large park in the center of Los Angeles. I think mm-hmm. that got me interested in at least uh, the physical aspects of, of hiking. And then later, my uh, attraction to the outdoors and, and nature in general. And so I guess, do, do you have any special moments in, in nature that kind of stand out for you? I can't think of any specific one early on that got me going. I think there are obviously a a number of special moments that I've had outdoors. Typically, I think most of them have been when I was hiking by myself. So early on, I started uh, enjoying solo hiking or backpacking. And when I do that, I've had a lot of uh, special moments. Uh, Of course, I've I've had a lot of good times with other people as well, backpacking. But uh, some of the more special moments were when uh, I've been up by myself. Yeah, I find that as well. It's a reflective experience for me. And I didn't really have a chance to go hiking or just like taking walks in nature until I moved to Austin, Texas. And there are many green belts there, which is super nice. And I think with those moments of extracting myself from an urban landscape and being in a purely natural environment was there was something kind of just like simplistic about it and then just also like having my dog to to walk with I think was was fun as well so when you've hiked with with others have you what sort of like the experience in terms of the interaction with them 
early on, I think it was with my friends and it was just nice to make it to a specific goal. Uh, typically, it'll be a, a mountain peak. And so when you get up to a summit, you get a really nice view, 360 view of the area. And that's really special. And, and sharing that with other people, you can point out features that are far away, whether it be a lake. So I think you get a sense of doing some kind of physical achievement, but you get this beautiful reward as well of a beautiful uh, scenery. And even if it's not the best time of year or best conditions, it's still special. So it could be too windy, too cold, too hot. It doesn't matter. That moment is still a special moment. And you just kind of uh, feel a lot of self-gratification. And that's one area. I think on a more deeper level, you get a a greater awareness of what's going on, at least of, of the physical environment. Yeah. I think you also have to uh, sometimes select the people that you're going to go hiking with, depending on sort of like their, their level of agility, or I guess like how far they can they can go on hikes. That's something I, I learned later on. <laughs> so, you know, you, you worked at the California Department of Parks and Recreation, also the California State Parks for, you know, much of your career. How did you find yourself working at the, the state park and... What were the decisions or thoughts you had when you decided, all right, this is something that I want to do? Through high school, I developed this sense of uh, public service. And actually, initially, mm-hmm. when I was in high school, my aspirations was to go into law enforcement and be a policeman as a way to serve other people. And there's the glamour, the, the neat part, you know, whether I got it from television or some other media source that I developed a the idea of, gee, this is some ways I could serve people and do good for society. That changed as I got into wildlife management in college. And then from there, it was the, the romance the, and the glamour of uh, being a park ranger initially with National mm-hmm. Park Service. Then uh, some time with um, the U.S. Forest Service with their Youth Conservation Corps. And this was in the 1970s, mid-70s. And it was by chance that I ended up working for a nonprofit organization, which worked with state parks as well as uh, Forest Service and uh, National Park Service. And California State Parks was doing some recruitment at that time for people of color, non-traditional applicants. And I was able to apply and get into the uh, California State Park system. So it was really, I think, luck and, and association special relationships that uh, got me into California state parks compared to uh, federal agencies. Mm. I was told that it's really hard to get jobs in the parks department or just to even be a, a park employee ranger. And yeah, just like you, I, I kind of had some sort of like, it's this romantic idea of being this ranger who's just kind of like scaling these beautiful landscapes and just like a free spirit. Did that kind of romanticism kind of transfer into your experiences of being an employee in the state park? I think at some point I realized, and I don't know if during my career, I realized that my job and career was going to give me some chance to be in those situations, but I'm going to have to do that on my own time. 
in terms of uh, being those beautiful landscapes. My first job with California State Parks was administering grants for parks and facilities. And this is for mm-hmm. city, usually for city and county park facilities. So I spent most of the time traveling and talking to park directors, other park professionals, and uh, being in an office with literally stacks of uh, paperwork dealing with uh, of projects. And that was my my work. And, and I spent uh, most of my time in the office in, in Sacramento, if not uh, flying to various uh, cities, looking at their city parks. And these were playgrounds, uh-huh. ball fields. But I found a, a lot of gratification and I got to know the full breadth of what outdoor recreation uh, or recreation can provide to communities. And that the kind of recreation of hiking or backpacking or being wilderness was just one part of the, the greater picture of what uh, recreation could provide people. Mm-hmm. I thought that was important for me to learn that and to realize that uh, wilderness and outdoor recreation and the benefits of that are individualized. Uh, in other words, um, it should be uh, something that we recognize that some people are going to get more out of uh, playing team sports. Some people are going to find wilderness in their backyard. And you don't have to necessarily go to the middle of the Sierras or the Rocky Mountains to, to experience um, and to get the benefits of outdoor recreation. That's so true. And I think it's especially important for urban communities and also even like lower income urban communities that tend to have less natural spaces. So, you know, when you were working in assessing the recreational areas for these urban neighborhoods, what considerations were you giving to creating sort of like an interactive and a healthy environment for these communities and in, in the urban neighborhoods? I guess initially was the hard data. And there's a term in federal grant programs called output versus outcome. So output is just simply how many people and how often or how many hours do they actually spend with these activities. So you could see that in a wear and tear of a park, for example. So if I go to an urban park and see um, equipment that looks fairly new and not used very much, that was interesting. It's very nice. Everything's kept up very well compared to an urban park that is heavily used in which there's uh, trails that the grass is, is, is half dead because so many people have been running across it even though it's still, it's maintained mm-hmm. as well as the other ones. And the playground equipment is worn and torn, not because it's not being maintained, but because so many people are using it. It could be a soccer field or it be whatever. And to me, the one that looked worn had more value to society. It was being utilized versus something that looked very right. great. So I, I try to use that as a, as a judgment in terms of which facility, which park was provided the most amount of output. That's one measure, but more importantly, the next level is what is the outcome? So in recreation, this individual outcome in which a person feels great achieving something, better health and learning something or something deeper and and feeling better about themselves or or their family. And that's one level of outcome. The next levels of outcome really deal with 
how this recreational facility uh, helped the community to get to a better place, whether it's reduction in crime, uh, having mm -hmm. better self-esteem for communities, or better achievement in schools, because we know outdoor education is a great uh, asset for education. Right. So I think that's another level of or place that we need to uh, measure uh, the, the benefits. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you guys measured that type of stuff. I didn't know that that was something that would be given consideration in, in terms of like your self-worth and also just mental health in a sense. So that's great. Were you able to see any differences in a community pre and post introduction of like a recreational space? It's hard to to measure that on a longitudinal time basis. I think it's easier to look at communities that have facilities that work and work well versus the communities that don't. So I looked at various parks that have a lot of use. And at the time, in the 90s and 20 years ago or so, there was a lot of attention placed on, let's say, uh, obesity and trying to reduce uh, obesity. It, was, it still is the major factor causing our life expectancies of our children to go down. So I could see that parks that have, or communities that have places where people could exercise, whether it's basketball, football, or places where the communities felt well enough to, that they could use a track or park to run around. And mm -hmm. that calories, essentially, I wanted to measure by calories burned. <laughs> this is the first you know, huh. basic uh, element. So <laughs> how many calories can we burn in this population of you know 10,000 people? So Interesting. whether I... Anyone's collecting that kind of data. I don't know. Public health people can collect that data. But I think I saw that in typically well-to-do communities. Lots of people are exercising. Lots of people are out there mm -hmm. walking, uh, biking, and involved with various sports, including people that are older, whether they be in, in all age classes. And in those communities, I suspect uh, the community is healthier and their, their life expectancy is better versus poorer communities in which even if they have the facility facilities in terms of park acreage per thousand, that there are other conditions in that community that prevent use. It could be fear of crime. It could be a lack of access due to a number of factors. And it could be just this, this culturally, uh, they were not uh, exercising as much. So the culture has a major factor in how much people exercise and get out. This was just to measure um, and try to deal with obesity because typically we deal mm. with nutrition, nutrition, but nutrition is just one side of obesity. The other side is physical exercise. Right. And I use obesity because that's an easy thing to, to measure. You can wait, you can get that in public health data. There's other benefits if we look at education. There's a reason why the wealthier schools, uh, private schools, build into their program time in which they take kids out to the outdoors to do outdoor education and even to do backpacking trips. So some of the most wealthiest mm -hmm. uh, schools, private schools, do backpacking trips. And they do that for almost all their participants, which then begs the question, why do they do that? 
in part maybe because they want to show their their customers, the people that are paying for this expensive education, that they can go to these fun neat places to back that. But I think it's also because they realize the benefits of that. The students have a greater understanding of the theater, whether it's biology or physics and math that they're teaching, or they know the benefits, uh, the psychological and social benefits of uh, outdoors. And I think that's why those schools do it. Right. And so why don't public schools do it as well? Is it just like an economic barrier? or just resources are tight? I think culturally, we think that to get a better grade or to do better in testing, we need to stick kids in classrooms and force information down into them, right? It's like force feeding. Mm -hmm. And we know that's not true. We know educators have known for a long time that may be effective in some respect, but in other countries, whether you go to Finland or even in Japan, they still value by independent thinking as well as being out, outside and playing. Mm-hmm. So in many respects, I think we missed the ball. Now, that's not to say that uh, professional educators and classrooms need more quality time in the classroom. I think that's, that's valuable. But right. the classroom doesn't have to have four walls. Uh, the classroom does not have right. to have uh, tables and chairs. And it's, I think, also an individualized type mm-hmm. thing in which so for some individuals, they work better outdoors. And for some individuals, they work better indoors. Either way, we need to provide that mix of having both. Yeah, completely agree. And I think, like, fortunately, that was a part of my educational experience in, in Kenya is we would have, you know, a few field trips during the semester. And then when we went to high school... I mean, in primary school, I think we had more field trips. And then when we moved into high school, the focus was just more on the books, like you said. And I think we just had two or three in my entire like four years of being in high school. And I think that was totally cultural because we did a British system and the school was predominantly South Asian. And, you know, there's a stereotype that South Asians tend to focus more on academics as sort of like an as a an indicator for success so yeah and then in in undergrad the nature was really our classroom which I just loved we would do like bird counts and we would go into the mangroves on our campus so I really flourished in that kind of environment so it's interesting that in your work you were mostly in the office or going to other parts of the state assessing their the the recreational areas. Most people, or I I should just speak for myself and just assume that, you know, majority of people who work in the park system actually, you know, are mostly outdoors. So that makes me curious to know more about like, what is then the culture of the California state parks when you worked there and you worked there for almost close to three decades, right? Right. Well, I should say, I don't think People in my in that department shared my views or my experience with regards to what the, the department was about or what recreation was about. So mm-hmm. most people that get into the parks field, recreation field, are tied to one specific aspect, uh, whether it be 
uh, one kind of park or just dealing with, uh, for example, California State Parks uh, also manages historic sites and historic resources. Right. So this could be a mission, this could be an archaeological site. So their focus is on the value of that site and its preservation and how to protect that and to interpret or, or find how a site can be of uh, value in terms of um, learning more about our, our history. And so I think there's that specialization that uh, most employees have, whether it be, in this case, just the history and archaeological or, or mm-hmm. information of, of, of that value. Someone else may be dealing with the biology of endangered uh, habitats and ecosystems. Someone else may be dealing with the beaches. Uh, California has great uh, beaches. So they're just mm-hmm. dealing with the recreational aspects of and the safety of people recreating on our beaches. To get a broader whole picture, you know, I had the benefit of first dealing with uh, grant programs throughout uh, California, and then later being involved with our urban services program, working with urban populations and communities, and later community involvement programs statewide. So I had to dabble in, in all those areas of that our department was dealing with but more importantly the name of our unit was uh, community involvement so that's very different from another part of our department that may be dealing with uh, resource protection natural resources and cultural protection so mm-hmm. when i dealt with community involvement i knew that the goal of the organization may have to deal with what are the or aligning our services with the goals and of and objectives of communities. So if a community, a church, a school, a city recreation parks department has certain goals or objectives to meet, then to be involved, I have to find a way for our organization, our department, to help them meet those goals. So we're partnering with the local organization, the community organization, to find a way for our services, our resources, to help them achieve their goals. At the same time, we're going to be able to meet some of the goals of our department as well. Uh, to me, that's why the, the word involvement is much more meaningful than what is typically used, which is uh, outreach. Right, right. You use the term outreach, it's like implying this implication somebody's out and somebody's in, and in what in it. Yeah. You know, basically have a you start uh, figuring out, you know, who's above the other. So I think that's important if if we are to provide good service, which I think all public agencies, and for that matter, many nonprofits need to do, is figure out how do you provide your service, how do you become effective. Right. How do you engage with the community that you are seeking to help and kind of empower them in that process? So what did involvement look like in your case? If you can give us some examples. What does involvement look like? Uh, involvement, so, so one of the programs that I developed in California State Parks together with a few other close uh, friends and partners was a fam camp. So in a fam camp, we provided camping facilities and camping equipment for a group of 20, 30 people in one of our group campsites or a series of family campsites in state parks. So in fam camp, we would go to a community organization and say, hey, you want to 
take uh, families camping or kids, you know, your, your clients uh, camping. And they'll say, sure, uh, what can we get or what's the process? So I'll set up the process. But if I can, I'll work with that community organization and say, what are your goals? What do you want to give your clients? Mm-hmm. So their clients may be families or maybe, uh, and let's to give you a more detailed example, let's say they're working with uh, young girls, teenagers, for whatever reason. And what they're looking for is that we want these women to feel more at ease and develop self-esteem and strength and be strong. But okay, why? Well, I know how to do that. At least I can help achieve that uh, goal. Mm-hmm. So they have to do all the planning, do all the work. They have to go camping. Some of these women may have, the young girls may have been cooking outdoors for the first time. Sometimes they're cooking for the very first time. And we have camp equipment, stoves, tents. They'll pitch up a tent on their own. They may have to do so as a group, you know, three or four women. So they're learning all kinds of uh, skills and doing all kinds of things. They're getting dirty. They're getting uh, all these different experiences that they typically wouldn't get. But they're getting something right. else in the process. The process of pushing up a tent with three or four other people when they have no idea and they don't look, they don't read the directions, that's, that's very useful for learning all kinds yes. of skills about interrelationships and communications. So that's great. Mm-hmm. I, I like to just let them loosen and do that. Some of them will read the directions and, and hopefully they get it up faster than the other women that uh, are in a campsite next to them. But that's part of it. But when they really want to deal with self-esteem, depending on their comfort level, they may go on a hike and it may be an evening hike and ultimately maybe doing something like a solo evening hike, uh, walk and doing it in a safe environment. So mm. for many of them, for the first time, they're walking completely by themselves at nighttime on a trail in some remote uh, area. For, for to them, it's wilderness, uh, even though we may be only a few miles from a city or town. So they're doing some kind of activity that is very unusual, different, but they can do it and they achieve that. So that's, in my mind, a way for us to have an activities or series of activities that, that I say is going to plan and gives that community organization that is working with young women some skills and some kind of, I guess, developmental goals that they, they've had on their, their list of things they wanted to do. Yeah, I would think that's a great opportunity for team building as well, right? Yeah, and so team building is huge, Working, learning how to work with others. And you know, these are just different activities. Now, sometimes... These things are, are planned out and we work on getting to them. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes we're just getting out away from the city and this other stuff just happens. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Yeah. So I think that's where this that outdoor recreation can achieve these goals and objectives and do so quite well. Because people remember, they'll come back years later and recall that moment that they, they had this fun time. Sometimes it wasn't a fun, necessarily yeah. fun time, but they still remember it and, and they're able to do something they didn't uh, normally do. Yeah. I guess I don't want to ask what were the non-fun times because I don't want to scare people, but 
<laughs> I had an opportunity to do the uh, fam camp, I guess, in Texas in uh, McKinney State Falls Park. And that was a really cool experience because it was the first time that I went camping, quote unquote camping. It was a quite a controlled environment, but we were given the equipment and we were taught how to, you know, pitch a tent and how to use like the stoves and the lanterns or the lamps rather. That was really cool. I really enjoyed it. And I, I still remember that experience. And because I was like, oh, I've never done camping before. So I just wondered what it, it felt like. And it felt like a safer space to have that experience where we have guidance from the rangers or the park staff, sorry, to kind of guide us through that, which I really appreciated. So, you know, through your experiences with California state parks, what were some, I guess, uh, experiences that stood out to you in terms of like the challenges that you faced and how you, you overcame those challenges? Well, an area that I worked on a lot throughout my career is this issue of uh, institutional racism, which is a, a term which, if you use it within an organization, it's very dangerous. If you go into any organization and use the term institutional racism, you really are, are labeled a, a troublemaker from a person mm-hmm. who may not uh, appreciate what the organization is or and, and the values of that organization. It's almost a strong negative criticism. And the managers, the supervisors in that organization is going to feel that uh, you've given them an insult. You've essentially called them racist. Right. But I know that even though the individual managers and people are, are real heroes in trying to achieve uh, equality, to try to help those who have been disenfranchised for whatever reason and, and try to make the organization better, when you say institutional racism, they think it's a personal attack. Mm-hmm. However, I think we just simply don't understand institutional racism very well. In fact, even cultural racism. But now that I'm retired out of the system, I use those terms a lot. It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, right. and I think you it's can't important. lose your job. <laughs> right. I can't. I'm not going to get promoted. You know, denied any more promotions. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so it's. Yeah. I think, but it's important for us to to see what institutional racism is like, how it works, and how embedded it is in the culture and the institution itself. So these institutions like the National Park Service, uh, U.S. Forest Service, uh, even county parks, state parks, they're established organizations with certain traditions and cultures. And within that, there's racism taking place in which Certain groups of people and others are not given uh, fair treatment or fair access. And often we can identify those. Uh, it's hard to understand how it works. And what, one example, mm-hmm. though, I'll, I'll often use is the National Park Service, uh, as well as many state park systems and some county park systems have uh, reservation systems because their campgrounds, particularly on uh, Popular weekend, a three-day weekend, Fourth of July weekend is very busy during the summer. Yosemite is always booked as early as you can make reservations for a campsite. So we rely on various mechanisms to reserve campgrounds and campsites. 
And to say that these systems are equitable in any way would be complete false. They're not. They're, they're simply not. You have to have a lot of information about how these systems work, these reservation systems work. Plan in advance, have the ability to plan in advance and a vacation in advance, have everything set up so you can make that reservation and get that campsite and then have everything else fall into place and have your vacations and everything worked out. Very mm-hmm. few people in our society have that ability to do that. And particularly if right. you're you know, below medium income, if you're poor, you, you don't have the ability to do all those things. And that's why, right. in many ways, those systems are selective and who can have access. Huh. Wow. So I guess that's eye opening. And thank you for sharing that and for being very candid. That's sort of like one of the questions that I had is whenever I've been to parks, I've always sort of like observed the demographics and the diversity of the demographics. I've always wondered why there it wasn't more racially gender represented and also like people with disabilities you don't get to see that so i you know as somebody who enjoys spending time in nature would like to see more of that and you kind of like answered that question of why don't we see more like a diverse group of people interacting in these natural spaces and i think like part of me probably has taken it for granted that i was able to like figure out how to set up a reservation, like know that I, you know, I have a laptop, I have internet and I can just go to the park's website and, you know, I read English and I know how to use technology. So it's easier for me. So just like going back to this concept of institutional racism, are there parks that kind of recognize how, you know, the reservations, the, the systems are kind of further or just like a form of institutional racism are there parks or managers who are trying to kind of fix that and if so how sure and and that's what the camp fam camp program that i I developed went around the reservation system we worked with community organization we we had the campsites worked out in advance so they were held Mm -hmm. back from the reservation system and we were able to allow that community organization have access. So essentially, that barrier was taken care of. Oh, okay. So you can identify a barrier, and you could have systems to get around that barrier. Mm-hmm. Now, so far, that's very limited numbers. So the, the numbers of times that we we did that was less than a few percentage points. So it's not going to make a huge difference. Uh, but it, we, we know how to handle certain things if you identify them. There's other barriers as well. When there could be culture. So culture means food, music, language, the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you dress. All those things are also barriers. And and I think we need to address each of them uh, at at a time. So in certain campgrounds, you can go into a campground and I could feel the culture of that campground. And if it's a very white, uh, uppity culture, it may not be comfortable for someone who's you know, coming from a different culture with regards to how you talk, walk, and, and the kind of music you play. So mm-hmm. that kind of stuff happens in all of our settings. It happens in all of our institutions and college campuses everywhere. But there are ways that you, we can address that and, and work that. In an institution like a state park or a national park, it's very hard because you have to train the staff 
to also accommodate different cultural groups. Right. And the simple way that we've tried to do that in, in the past is like they'll look, oh, we have people from that look Chinese coming to our park all the time. They may even speak Chinese when they come. We'll simply translate our pamphlet into Chinese uh, to give to them Japanese, German, mm-hmm. you know, so, so we can address the, the foreign visitor. The language barrier. And when you do yeah. that, that, that's good. I mean, we you try to bridge the, the language gap in that sense. That's probably the easiest, simplest, minimal level that you can achieve that. Because in that sense, you're, you're presuming that, let's say, if it's a pamphlet, that the information on your pamphlet and the way you are presenting that information is going to be of equal value to the client, to the visitor. So if you just do a simple translation, you're essentially giving that person what you would have given someone in your other your normal culture, your main culture information, but just in a different language. It's just good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, not bad. But you see, that's a minimal level because if we look at the bigger picture, the visitor may actually be looking That's the visitor from Japan or, the, or in this case, just a different part of the country, a different uh, community, wants different kind of information, which means your pamphlet is good, but maybe not good enough. You need to rewrite your pamphlet and information altogether to fit this, this other customer. It's not just a simple mm-hmm. language barrier. It is a content barrier. Right. So how do you determine what content is more relevant based on the uh, respective culture? Mm-hmm. So in this case, mm-hmm. if we're going to use like a Japanese client, how do we create content that's relevant to them? Sure. That means you need someone from that culture. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you, need, you need knowledge of that culture or you need someone from that right. culture within your organization. And this mm-hmm. is the issue of when diversity comes into play and how do you deal with the diversity? Because if you bring in someone from that culture to your organization to help you, which is a great, great move, do you bring in that person and help that person come into your organization with a assimilation model or do you use it with a diversity model? Mm-hmm. So if you simply bring in that person from that community that that is not existent in your community, in your institution, you bring it in and you use a assimilation model, meaning that when they come in, they have to act, talk, work, and, and know your culture of your organization. And essentially you turn them into someone from your organization then you defeat the purpose of bringing that person into your organization mm-hmm. because yeah. that person will end up acting and, and essentially producing the same product with the same content uh, as one of your own people anyway. It just happens that they look different or they originally came from that other community. So right. we have to be very careful that we don't create involvement programs or in this case a recruitment program to bring in someone of of different culture and just turn them into someone that you normally would have in your organization anyway. It it defeats that purpose. And unfortunately, most institutions use a assimilation model. In fact, they want to train someone at a very young age to become very much like anyone else in their organization and ends up producing the same product. In fact, I thought I had a theory that most people of color in these institutions are bicultural. 
and it happened to me as well as other people I know. We, we talk other friends that I have of, of people of color in state parks and national parks. I've talked to them about how we have to be bicultural to, to survive. One culture right. that we have to use is our home culture. And the other, and that's where I act and talk, and that's where I eat and behave when I'm at home, my home community. And then when I go to work, I have to have a white culture. I have to have a culture of the National Park Service. And that's how I have to survive to do both. If you completely divorce yourself from your home culture and become white, you could do that. And obviously people do that well. But at some point, they have maybe some identity issues. So you have real right. problems. And that's where people would also have to end up leaving. So someone comes into the organization and they cannot survive by biculturally. So they can't survive. They have a hard time being just in one culture. Interesting. Even if you do try to assimilate and say if you're like a person of color in a predominantly white culture, then correct me if I'm wrong. But I'm assuming that at some point in, in promotion, does that impact, even if you have completely assimilated into the dominant culture, does like your physical identity and like the stereotypes that come with it impact your opportunity to get promoted within that system? Yeah, I mean, I think there are the physical limitations and physical barriers, which are easy to, easier to identify and notice. But I think the internal cultural identities are harder to identify right. and, and sometimes harder to deal with. Yeah. Okay. And so as someone who's kind of familiar with the system and kind of like the flaws of it, did you have an opportunity to have conversations about how, without using the word institutional racism, <laughs> if you were able to kind of get any managers or leadership aware and willing to act on kind of deconstructing those harmful systems? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think there's a lot of managers, and I think this is something that's reflective of the parks field. Mm -hmm. They're good people. They know that they're to do public service, and they want to... Um, help those communities. They sincerely want to do so. So once they understand and, and can work with the system, they will try to address those barriers and address those issues. Right. The difficulty is that these institutions are huge. These institutions have a huge amount of history. And in, in order for they, these people to get into positions of management of power, they had to understand and abide by these institutions' norms and work within those norms. These institutions have huge numbers of uh, layers of, of uh, bureaucracy and, and systems. They are not meant to, to hurt people or reduce access. They are meant to protect the institution and the traditions of the institution, which are generally good good traditions. So. It becomes very hard for them to deal with how do we deal with these systems to make them happen. So typically, in order for any of these special programs, uh, special camping programs to, to work, someone fairly high in management of the organization simply has to say to everyone else, 
this is going to happen. This is the way it's going to have to happen. We're going to relax some of those rules. We're going to find an exception. And that's how they end up happening. And that's mm-hmm. why so many of these programs are so haphazard and there's spots throughout these institutions where these good things happen. Mm. And they're only going to happen until that person moves on. That only is going to happen until the people who understand what's going on and try to find a way to rectify it are, are there. Once those people are gone, they retire. The institution is still stronger than, than a group of individuals. The institutions can go back to these traditional systems. Oh, no. So it's like, you know, all your hard work is just kind of like gone to waste because, you know, the institution just like kind of regresses. Yes. Well, one could say regresses back to, but another description would be it goes back to its traditional method of protecting the institution and traditions. Mm -hmm. So some may say it's good. And there's sometimes a good reason for that. So if you have an administration that's trying to push the institution in a different direction altogether to be more racist in its operation, then the traditions of the institution will resist that as well. So there's another side of all institutions being um, so institutionalized and, and strong. So I, I think it's it's not always bad that the institution is rigid and the institution is too much into tradition. True. But on the other hand, we're just kind of like depending on the institution sort of like having values of, you know, equity and representation. Yeah, I feel like that's a a bigger conversation that we could we could have around a campfire at some point. Yeah, it's a huge problem. And it's, you know, it's a problem within society and really a very small number of people can understand it and have uh, some play in it, even though right. it, in many ways it's a very simple issue, a very simple item. Um, but I don't think yeah. it's anything that uh, we can handle, you know, with a simple program or a simple section of an institution trying to handle it. It's, it's too big of right. an issue. Yeah, and, uh, you know, things like this take a long time to kind of reform, in a sense. So in all the plethora of experiences that you've had, what do you wish you had known before you started working at the state parks? I think looking back, I don't know if I know now much more than I knew before. The difference, though, is I may have more patience now than I had before. So in my 20s and 30s, I had less patience and less tolerance of other people. So now that I'm retired, I am more patient and I have more tolerance of different thoughts and ideas. It's okay. Yeah. I think if I had more patience and tolerance when I was in my 20s and 30s, that may have helped, or maybe not. Maybe it was a good thing I didn't have patience that caused me to be more vocal and outspoken. Mm-hmm. I think now... I may be more clever in how I go about things now than I was back then. So in my 30s, I was more direct. I was outspoken, but I was more direct, and I may have offended or insulted people in that process. So after 30, 40 years, I've become 
more clever in getting figuring out how to fix things and how to work to make things better and realize that it's going to take more time uh, so so that's right. how i have approached my efforts at the, the pilgrimage in yosemite how i did my uh, 10 miles and walk uh, in, in a day and 10 miles in a day hike all these things were little bits at how to chip away at uh, how to change the institution yeah yeah it's a the power of persuasion <laughs> you know either you can yell at them and ask them to change or you can work with their an individual's perception or their culture to kind of get them to see another version or another perspective so you know you mentioned the pilgrimage and the 10 mile walk in a day could you briefly tell me a little bit more about what those initiatives are about Mm. The Yosemite pilgrimage, this is with, in conjunction with the National Park Service and uh, the Chinese Historical Society of Southern California. So about nine years ago, I discovered that uh, Yosemite has a, a long history of uh, Chinese uh, workers in various fields that helped build Yosemite, the road system, cooks and chefs and, and people who worked in the hotels. But it's a part of the history of Yosemite that I didn't know about. It. I've been to Yosemite many times, and I said, yeah, this is not right. This is a huge breadth of information that, that is useful for not only for Chinese Americans, Chinese tourists, but also for the general public. They need to know that John Muir didn't do it all. And so Adams isn't the only guy that was involved in Yosemite. Mm-hmm. And so it's a part of Yosemite history that I wanted to bring out a bit more. So I began uh, together with a, a number of friends, some inside the National Park Service, seasonal people, and the Chinese Historical Society, a pilgrimage project in which we went to Yosemite during the summer, usually latter part of July. And two things, there's two parts to it. The first part was spending two or three days visiting historic sites that had this history of Chinese involvement. So it may be a historic uh, road that the Chinese built or hotel that the Chinese worked in, stories about chefs and so forth. The other part is going to Sing Peak. So Tai Singh was a backcountry chef that was very famous in the creation of the National Park Service. He was the chef for the Mountain Mather Party, was the genesis of the National Park Service. So I'm a backpacker, I like hiking, and Sing Peak, which is named after Tai Singh, he was the a chef for the U.S. Geological Survey team that did the mapping, so that's how they, they named the peak after him. Uh, it's in the southeastern border of Yosemite, and we lead teams of groups um, once a year to go to the peak. This coming summer will be the eighth time that we did pilgrimage to Sing Peak, so we'll get the, our people to hike up Sing Peak and remember Tai Singh and his contribution to the National Park Service. Yeah. And, and you know, yeah, I like that's to really give cool. him credit for creating the National Park Service with this good good, uh, cooking, backcountry cooking. Mm. The other projects, and the reason why this goal, this pilgrimage, when I started out this pilgrimage, I said I was going to do it for 10 times in a row. So I'm I'm coming up to year eight, and this is part of the cleverness or patience that I wanted to build in when I started out, which is I knew for things to work and change the institution, I'm not going to be able to to do it in one or two years, not even three years. I have to do right. it over and over and over. So I'm doing this pilgrimage for mm-hmm. 10 years. And maybe after yeah. 10 years, it'll stick. 
Uh, and so now people are looking forward to doing the pilgrimage that the news is getting around. Yeah. And, and we've had some good uh, media coverage. The 10 miles in a day is last year was the 150th year for the uh, Transcontinental Railroad being built. And when we think of that event of the Transcontinental Railroad and famous day that the two railroads met, there's an iconic picture of that. And there's been a lot of work by the Chinese to change that image to have lots of Chinese in that picture, whereas the, the picture that's in all of our history books excludes the Chinese that worked on the railroad from, from the West. So there's a lot of more historic information about that. I'm not an academic historian or a writer, so I can't change things that way. I'm not a photographer, so I can't change the, the picture that was taken. There's a guy named Corky Lee that's actually changing that picture so that I have two trains meeting with a bunch of Chinese in it. So he's, he's changing mm-hmm. that, that image of what Transcontinental Railroad is, was about. I am a hiker, though. So when I found out that suit of about a week or so before the meeting of the two trains, the Central Pacific, mainly with Chinese and 10 Irish, built 10 miles of track in one day, a record that hasn't been broken. Mm-hmm. And so about a year and a half ago, I figured out where that 10 miles is, and a group of us from California and a few from Ogden, Utah, went and hiked that uh, 10 miles in one day, the same day that it was built 150 years ago. That day, April 28th, happens to be my birthday, so that was another sign that we needed to do that. So we got some good media coverage on that as well, that we, group of us, about 23, 25 of us, walked the 10 miles same day that it was built uh, 150 years ago. That's really cool. I'd, I'd love to do the, the pilgrimage or the 10-mile walk it's, uh, yeah, at some it's, point. But you see, it's, it's a kind of a gimmick and clever way to <laughs> pay, get more attention on the workers, not to do these two companies that made a lot of money building this railway. Yeah. <laughs> Smart indeed. <laughs> so now we've unfortunately coming to the close of our conversation here. And I have a lightning round where I ask our guests to share the first thing that comes to their mind when I ask them these four questions. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? Or it could be just like in your life, I guess, in your lifetime. Let me just do something very more recent, which is just a week and a half ago, I hiked down the Grand Canyon and hiked back up, spent two nights down below. And it was beautiful, it was Mm. fabulous, but it reminded me of geologic time and how much, how a small, thin sliver of time humans and our lives are in time in general. And it's given me another Mm -hmm. appreciation of time and how valuable our time is here. And in some ways, how little consequence our time is. But I think that's influenced me a a lot in in the last uh, few weeks. Mm. Yeah, it's a pretty powerful place. I've hiked there, but I I wasn't able to make it all the way down. So uh, you're a superhuman there. (laughs) What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I think my time of being able to be off by myself has, but that habit, personal habit uh, or love has helped me. So uh, the times that I've been off by myself uh, thinking or a solo hike has 
either rejuvenated me or, or if nothing else, maybe it's helped my keep my weight down and uh, keep me from being uh, a statistic on the obesity uh, scale. So I, I think that's a personal habit that's helpful and I hope to continue doing as much as I can. Yeah, that's a good one. What's the best piece of advice you've given? I think more recently, I've learned that we've given expectations of human beings, of, of other people, of friends and family as well too high of expectation and that we should realize we're all fallible. We all have faults. We're not going to think very well at times. We're quite gullible to to all kinds of false ideas and impressions. So I think if I was to advise somebody, I would say, you know, don't think human beings are that great. Give us a break. Give yourself a break. (laughs) Give others a break. Yeah, yeah. Which is ironic for the next question because it is, what is your superpower? I don't know if I have a, a superpower as much as what I've been either blessed with or the luck that I've had. So these various mm-hmm. experiences from childhood from through high school and and then the opportunity to work for for various really good people and good organizations was uh, luck. So if I got a superpower, I would be blessed. It was be blessed with good luck meeting my wife and having a great family. And uh, my in-laws were great. I have a, a very strong family bond. So my superpower was really the, the luck that I've had forming all these mm-hmm. uh, parts and, and giving me uh, the ability to, to survive, do well, and, and have a really uh, a good life. Yeah, I agree. So uh, now that we've kind of come to the end here, how can we follow you on your journey? Well, I can share with others. You know, I, I Googled my name every now and then, and it's interesting. There's a few new stories <laughs> that'll come up. Uh, as long as you don't mix me up with many yeah. other people that have similar names or the same name. The same name, yeah. But, you know, these stories do come out. I, I hope the, the program is effective and will continue in some way. Uh, after I finish the 10 years, someone else is going to have to do something similar and continue it. Uh, there's a few yeah. other goals that I have on my bucket list. Some of them may may change institutions. So I think uh, that needs to continue. And I think many of the things that I've been involved with in other fields, uh, when I'm dealing with social issues, I hope the changes that take place change whole societies and institutions. And they're not going to have my name on it. I don't really want my name on it. They can just change and and that's going to be fine. So in some ways, you're not going to be able to follow what I've done. And I don't really care that anyone follows it. It's going to just change. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yes, yes. Strip yourself off the ego. So is there anything else you would like to add before we pause this conversation? No, I think you've covered it pretty well. And I've been able to uh, get a lot of information or things I thought was important conveyed. So thank you for a great interview. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. 
You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.